window closed. Yeah, it's good. Alright, welcome to episode 8 of the Me and My Friends podcast. Today I'm joining you from Bosnia and Herzegovina with my friend Yasmin Ujanovic. There we go. We're already starting off on the right path. Um, I am uh, sitting in this wonderful neighborhood. It's bordering uh, the old Ottoman uh, neighborhood in the newer Austro-Hungarian neighborhood, which is still not actually that new, um, in a part of town that uh, last night was off the hook. I was wandering around and it was actually quite crazy. Um, I, it's just weird for me to think of myself in this part of the world and just meandering through an absolutely crazy dance party um, <laughs> where there's just tons of beautiful, well-dressed people walking down the streets. It's it's not the Bosnia that people will probably imagine. Um, and so today, uh, with Yasmin here, I would like to uh, explore a little bit more of what Bosnia is today. How did it get to that point? Um, where are they coming from? how they identify themselves today, and then what other uh, pearls of wisdom I can pull out of them. <laughs> so yeah, thank you very much for being my guest today. Thank you very much for having me. And, and so, uh, can you tell me, uh, and the guests, a little bit about your biography? Um, how, how is it that you are living here right now in this moment? Uh, well, uh, I'm originally from here. I was born in Sarajevo, um, back in the long distant year of 1986. Um, my family and I left, uh, left Bosnia at the beginning of the war. Uh, we did a fairly circuitous but actually fairly standard sort of refugee route at the time. We were in Croatia for, for a while, uh, Slovenia, Germany for about three years, and then we ended up settling in, settling, I should say, uh, in, in Canada around 96, um, the beginning of 96. And so I did my studies in Canada. I'm a PhD candidate in political science at York University in Toronto. Um, been living in the U.S. for the last two years or so, and um, finishing up my studies and uh, sort of transitioning a little bit. And uh, I'll be hanging out in Sarajevo for the foreseeable future. Okay. And so many people would ask, why have you dedicated 11 years of your life towards this academic pursuit? Like, what is it that is driving you? What is, what is your fascination? Um, I mean, I grew up in a very political household. Uh, and I grew up in a very political time. I mean, all times are political, but obviously with, with the dissolution of Yugoslavia and with the war and even the post-war situation, it was, a very, it was a very formative experience, I think, not just for myself, but for a lot of my, a lot of my generation and a lot of my colleagues. Um, and there was a great number of things that came out of the pro that process that I find, find and found at the time um, deeply problematic and, and deeply strange and curious and um, I wanted to investigate them further and you know as, as these things so often go the only place or one of the few places where you can really in-depth talk about these things is, is in the academy that's sort of where you have the time and resources to you know take a little country like Bosnia or even a little region like the, like the Balkans and say okay I really want to I really want to find out what happened here, where this place is going, and so on. 
So, some of my listeners are not quite familiar with what happened in Bosnia. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, they probably don't even remember Yugoslavia, and that's mm -hmm. no fault to them. Sure. It's just been a long time since yeah. that uh, country existed. So, can you give people kind of a rundown of how Yugoslavia came to be, and then the kind of dissolution of the country and how that um, relates to Bosnia? Um, I guess the quickest, shortest version is after about 500 or so years of, uh, of the Ottoman Empire having its farthest, well not farthest, but uh, certainly it's the, the furthest extent uh, into, into Europe proper that the Ottoman Empire got was, was basically this region. Um, so they were here from about the, the middle of the 15th century uh, to, to the beginning of the 20th century or the end of the 19th century in the case of Bosnia. And uh, that then led into the arrival of the Austro-Hungarians. And after that ended, after the First World War, uh, we got uh, what's usually just referred to as the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, which was a, a fusion, a federation, a, a, a coming together of uh, the so-called South Slavic states, the South Slavic regions, um, among which was Bosnia-Herzegovina and, and Croatia and Serbia and Slovenia and Macedonia and Montenegro and uh, some of the sort of smaller regions in between them, including Kosovo and Vojvodina. Um, after the coming of the fascists and the Nazis during World War II and the end of World War II, there was a second incarnation of the Yugoslav state under sort of explicitly communist principles led by uh, Josip Broz Tito. Um, that lasted for about 50 or 60 years, um, and that in turn dissolved uh, towards the end of the 80s um, and the beginning of the 90s, uh, whereupon the second Yugoslav Federation dissolved, fell apart due to war and conflict, um, and today we have six or seven sovereign states um, that formerly were one country of Yugoslavia. They are some of them are in the EU, like uh, Slovenia and Croatia. Um, the rest, like Bosnia-Herzegovina and Serbia, uh, Montenegro, Macedonia, and Kosovo are, as of yet, not. So this is kind of where we are today. Okay, so I'm going to sound uh, kind of ignorant here. Um, but I've been walking around the city of Sarajevo for the last week and really admiring a lot of the architecture. And to do that, you have to kind of erase yeah. the um, mortar blasts and the bullet holes on all the buildings and just kind of imagine what the streets and boulevards might have looked like had the buildings been intact and not affected by a war. Um, and these are really beautiful buildings and they're from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so, um, how, how was the Austro-Hungarian Empire regarded when they came into the city and, and kind of, um, uh, from uh, an ignorant person's standpoint, made some really nice buildings and seemingly <laughs> improved the place a little bit after what I understand the, the Ottomans um, uh, didn't quite go to that length in, in improving the area in which these people live? I mean, it's... It's, it's a very difficult question because you have to understand that the arrival of the Austro-Hungarian Empire came at the end of about a two or three hundred year period uh, in which the Ottoman Empire had been in significant decline. Um, and Bosnia in particular was, it was an imperial borderland. It was a, 
It was a place of tremendous political um, contestation. Um, so I'm not sure that it's entirely fair to say that the Ottomans didn't uh, you know, leave, a, leave a significant cultural and architectural and historical footprint. They absolutely did. Um, but it also, like I said, must be understood in, in the context of sort of imperial decline. Um, and so when the when the Austro-Hungarians showed up after after the Congress of Berlin and they and they took this area over, um, you know it was a it was a territory it was a province that they had lusted for, um, for about as long as the Ottoman Empire had been in decline. Um, they had, had their eye on this rather lucrative parcel of land, um, lucrative for various reasons, not necessarily because it was rich per se, but it. It had certain industries, and it was it was geopolitically lucrative. I think above all for them, um, and so they came here. And, and and as all imperial regimes, they were very keen to um, to leave their mark. And so they went on a very dramatic and very rapid uh, uh, planned transformation of, of Sarajevo and, and Bosnia Herzegovina as a whole. So this particular part of town was was uh, you could say a priority project. So a lot of the a lot of the sort of uh, Ottoman era um, buildings and, and neighborhoods and what have you were torn down uh, during the Austro-Hungarian period, and, and, and they built that sort of standard, I mean, I shouldn't say standard, because it is a sort of an interesting fusion of Ottoman and Austrian architecture, but nevertheless, sort of this recognizably West European uh, romance classical style. Um, and then, I mean, the interesting thing about Sarajevo is that you can sort of regard it and, and, and travel through it architecturally, because then we had uh, subsequent waves of, um, uh, during the first Yugoslav period and the communist period, of different architectural styles. So there are places where, you know, in the same street corner, you can see a building from, you know, the 16th century in a very classical Ottoman style, and then you can see one from the 19th century across from it in a classical, neo-romantic, uh, Austrian, Austro-Hungarian style, and then from that you can see some sort of square block, uh, uh, you know, gray Yugoslav communist, very functional uh, design. And then somewhere in the background you'll see some of this sort of uh, still newer, shinier, glitterier mall popping up. So it's a very, um, it's a place of fusion and mixture, it always has been, and I think it will remain that way. Yeah, it's an amazingly beautiful place, and it, it can't be described in a way that really um, communicates how amazing it is to wander down these streets. That is just my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. um, so anyways, the uh, Austro-Hungarians are here, they're making some cool buildings, they're making it look really nice, um, but then what happens? Um, well, it's a, you know, it's a very long story, but... Um, there was a significant uh, portion of the population that was unhappy with the arrival of the Austro-Hungarians. Why would they be unhappy with people who are making such a beautiful <laughs> <laughs> They should be greeted as liberators. Yeah, right? uh, well, um, anytime an imperial regime collapses, there is a opening of political options, I think is the sort of the, the, the simplest way that one can put it. And I think there was a significant portion of the population in this entire region that when it was clear that the Ottoman Empire was was about to collapse or had collapsed, um, they had various ideas, and um, one of which was certainly uh, attaining some kind of significant sovereignty, whatever that meant in the context of uh, the late 19th century, early 20th century. And with uh, 
the replacement of the Ottomans by the Austro-Hungarians, so one imperial regime replaced by another, um, that seemed to foreclose uh, that, um, that opportunity. And there was various groups in Bosnia and Herzegovina that were very unhappy with that from various ethnic communities, from various political communities as well. Um, all of which, of course, culminated in the very famous uh, assassination of uh, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie, um, in, uh, in 1914 uh, by uh, a young gentleman by the name of Gavril Princip uh, that, of course, didn't begin World War I, uh, but did, uh, was a significant step in that direction. And I would surmise to say that a lot of people who are familiar with the more recent conflict of the 90s will look at um, Gavrilo Princip and, and note that he's a Serb mm -hmm. and try to tie um, some sort of, you know, greater ethnic plan into his action, but is that a fair thing to do? I don't think that's entirely fair to Princip and, and his colleagues. Um, I think last year we had the anniversary of the, uh, well, the, the, the 100th year anniversary of the beginning of World War I, um, and so obviously Sarajevo was uh, in, a, in a media storm and, and, you know, the debate that dominated, at least vis-a-vis -vis the assassination, was, you know, is Gavril Princip a, a national liberator? Uh, that was particularly coming sort of from the, I would say, the Serb nationalist camp, or is he, um, is he a terrorist? Um, and I don't think he was either one. I mean, yes, what he did was an act of terrorism, I mean, in a, in a, in a very sort of straightforward sense. Um, but a hundred years after the fact, I think we should be able to, to talk about him and, 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 and the milieu out of which he emerged in, more complex, um, in a more complex fashion. Um, for one thing, Gavril Princip was a young radical, um, not that dissimilar from a whole host of other young radicals active at the time in Europe. Um, you know, he was reading anarchist literature, he was reading Marxist literature, he was reading nationalist literature, he was reading all kinds of things, and, and he was influenced by all these people in various ways. Um, and as a, as a teenager, which is what he was, um, he came to the conclusion that he needed to make a dramatic statement to liberate what he saw as his people and liberate what he saw as his land. Um, the attempt to uh, reconceptualize uh, Gavril Princip in some circles as sort of exclusively a Serb nationalist, um, for better or for worse, meaning both from, for instance, Bosniak nationalists who want to say Gavril Princip was a Serb nationalist and some sort of, you know, proto Slobodan Milosevic, or on the other hand, from actual Serb nationalists who will say, um, I don't know, I guess he was a proto Slobodan Milosevic, and that's a good thing. Um, I think both of those interpretations are false, and, and they do a disservice to actually um, what was a really vibrant and fascinating and complicated place at the time. Um, I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm in many ways very sympathetic to Gavril Princip, not because he murdered someone, um, but because I think the frustrations that he and his colleagues felt at the time uh, are a theme that have sort of remained consistent, unfortunately, in this in this region, which is to say the frustrations of young people, um, sort of entombed by the prejudices and and uh, the perspectives of their elders. And I think he tried to he tried to change that, and he tried to make sort of a dramatic departure from that. Obviously, I don't think he did it in the right way, 
Um, but young people tend to do crazy things. So. Yes, I mean that. So I think it's probably fair to say that the fact that it was a Serb probably is not a major part of that story. Like no. it's, it's like taking you down a false path if yeah. that's what you're looking at. Um, and the fact that he's just like this fired up teenager. I mean, how many people out there have been fired up teenagers about some yeah. subject matter that they're passionate about? Um, and then, you know, me myself being, you know, in my 30s now, it, it's easy to look back at myself as a fired up, you know, 19-year-old, um, like, investigating what the IRA did in Northern sure. Ireland, just getting like, ah, foaming yeah. at the mouth. Um, it, it's easy to see him in that context and be a little bit forgiving. I mean, as you mentioned, he did murder somebody, sure. which is yeah. never um, a route that I'm sure any of us would recommend yeah. uh, heading down. But he was just kind of a, 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 a dumb kid, maybe. Right? I mean, I think he's a tragic figure. Yeah. That's, you know, that's the thing. He's a tragic figure who um, who thought he could make change, and, and he did in many ways. And I mean, the thing that I always say is people should go back and read um, the things that he and his colleagues in this sort of wider circle um, that he was in that they wrote and published. And it's fascinating. It's very sophisticated at times, and at other times it's completely contradictory and sort of um, backwards. Yeah. Uh, it, and, 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 and that, above all, is sort of the insight into Gabriel Princip, and I think in many ways an insight into what, what Bosnia and the entire um, Western Balkans, as it's called now, looked like and was at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. It was a very dynamic place where sort of everything seemed possible, for better or for worse. And he thought he could steer, steer it in a particular direction. Well, Europe at that time was just insane. There were so many places where there were people just like him um, reimagining um, the, the system. Uh, I've read a lot about Irish history at that mm -hmm. time. Right around 1916, there was the Easter Rising where a bunch of Irish nas nationalists declared an Irish free mm -hmm. state, uh, free from Britain. Um, and, I mean, I've often wondered, you know, could it have just as easily been that, that an Irish nationalist assassinated a certain sure. person to ignite the fire that was World War One? So, you know, it's really not fair to throw that all on his shoulders. Yeah. He just happened to be that, you know, that kind of actor that was that did that yeah. thing at that one time. But really, it could have been any number of people yeah. to uh, ignite that thing. And it, so. and, it, and it sort of also lets off the hook the various European imperial regimes of the time who had spent the last, you know, pr the preceding three or four decades in earnest preparing for a war. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so one does, one does not simply have a war. One plans a war. Right. Um, and so uh, Gavrilo Princip was in some ways... Uh, at the right place at the right time in a very sort of uh, cynical way, as it were. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to skip a couple decades of history <laughs> that I'm not really familiar with. Okay. And then um, in the uh, late 30s, early 40s, I imagine this place was just crawling with Nazis. Can you walk me through that? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, what, so Yugoslavia is invaded at the beginning of the 1940s. Who um, invades them? The Nazis. Okay. The Nazis. Uh, so uh, the Nazis are doing their thing, uh, invading everyone. Um, and uh, sure enough, they get around to, uh, to Yugoslavia, uh, which itself is coming arguably unglued at the seams due to certain 
um, internal problems, which again have been sort of re-remembered, uh, especially after what happened here in the 90s, as national and ethnic problems, which again I don't think is entirely accurate, but be that as it may, um, once the Nazis arrive, uh, you get a couple different um, resistance and quasi-resistance movements that pop up. Uh, there are certain uh, Serb nationalists that initially oppose the arrival of the Nazis, uh, but then very soon actually become Quislings and cooperate with the fascist occupation. Um, and then on the other hand, you get the emergence of uh, communist guerrillas. Um, or at least what are formerly communist guerrillas, but end up recruiting a whole host of people into their ranks um, from all ethnic communities in across the former Yugoslavia, um, who uh, are just keen and determined to repel the invader, as it were. Um, so those are the those are the partisans. Those are the the communist guerrillas, um, and most of the significant. Uh, military operations that end up happening over the course of uh, World War II in Yugoslavia actually end up happening in Bosnia-Herzegovina um, because it is sort of the heart uh, of Yugoslavia um, and it is uh, not just sort of, I would say, politically um, and culturally a crossroads of the entire region, um, but it's sort of geopolitically very significant. Um, so if you, can, if you can hold Bosnia, uh, you can sort of control the region. And uh, the Nazis understood that, uh, as did the partisans. Uh, and so the liberation movement, the national liberation movement, as it came to be called, uh, ends up really coming, I would say, to its fullest expression in this, in this part uh, of the region. And uh, the, the communists very explicitly try to create sort of a multi-ethnic, multi-culti, multicultural, uh, movement, uh, a sort of Yugoslav, truly Yugoslav movement, um, and they ultimately succeed. Uh, Yugoslavia ends up being uh, one of the only countries in Europe that, for all intents and purposes, liberates itself. Um, there is, of course, uh, help from uh, the Western Allies. There is also help from the Soviet Union, but by and large, Yugoslavia is liberated through the through the efforts of um, through the efforts of of, of the people here. Um, and uh, so, come 1945, uh, we have a second Yugoslav state, an explicitly, um, explicitly communist uh, state, but that nevertheless is trying to uh, to do something different um, from the rest of the Eastern Bloc, which it, in the end never actually ends up becoming formally a part of, especially after 1948, where Tito and Stalin have their split. And so Yugoslavia ends up becoming this sort of third-way country, um, uh, and it indeed uh, ends up leading a sort of third camp in international politics thereafter, along with countries like uh, India, for instance, and, and uh, similarly uh, non-aligned countries, the non-aligned movement as it became to be, uh, came to be known. So Tito is often regarded as the benevolent dictator, mm -hmm. um, which makes him sound... Uh, I don't know, like a cuddly bear, like, I mean, a nice dictator, right? Yeah. Um, was he that nice? Uh, I mean, I think it depends on who, uh, who you ask, and I think much of Tito's reign, again, has been re-remembered through what happened here in the 90s. Um, you know, this is a theme that we keep coming back to, and it absolutely de depends on who you ask. 
um, people who had remained sort of generally sympathetic to to um, to Yugoslavia or some Yugoslav ideal generally tend to have a fairly positive view of Tito, and people who uh, are more, let's say, nationally or nationalistically inclined tend to have a fairly negative view of him, and indeed many blame him uh, for sort of sowing the seeds of the later dissolution of the state that he ostensibly worked so hard to create. So I, I would just say, I, for the last couple of years I've been running around saying, oh yeah, he, he was a benevolent dictator, mm -hmm. he, he was a cool dude and whatever. Um, but then I started learning that actually he had a, kind of a secret police unit that would sure. go around and uh, go so far as to assassinate people yeah. that didn't agree with him, yeah. both here and abroad. Yeah. And also, right as he was kind of taking the leadership role, there were probably tens of thousands of people that were <laughs> killed yeah. by him and his people. Um, so, given that, I mean, how is that exactly benevolent? Uh, no, I mean, I, I think the, the word benevolent is kind of a funny one, right? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's very politically charged here. Um, I, you're absolutely right. At the end of World War II, there was mass liquidations. Um, that's to use the proper, <laughs> the proper communist jargon, liquidations uh, of what were perceived to be enemies of the state, uh, which in most cases were people that the communists accused of having been um, uh, fascist collaborators. Um, so, uh, in, in a situation like that, would it be enough to, um, do you know, to to say, actually, wait, I am on your side. Like, trust me, this. Uh, I mean, it's it's like any situation where there is sort of a, a killing frenzy. Yeah. It depended on where and who you were at what time. I mean, I think uh, you would be hard pressed to encounter a family in the Balkans who didn't have family members on every which side of virtually every which war that that is roiled this region over the past two centuries. Um, and so those, those histories and those stories are very, are very complicated. Um, so it's, you know, I don't know that there's a simple answer to that question. It's certainly the case that um, there was um, a great deal of killing towards the end of the war and at the end of the war, and it's definitely the case that uh, the communists after the Second World War had a, had a strong arm approach and that they continued to attempt to get rid of people that they perceived to be enemies of, uh, of their regime, uh, both in Yugoslavia itself and actually abroad as well. And so a lot of Bosnian expats, or uh, I guess you'd call them refugees, to be mm -hmm. honest, that I've met in America, um, have off they, they look back on the former Yugoslavia with mixed emotions, I would say, yeah. but they do seem to make it seem like it was actually kind of a nice place to live. Um, granted, uh, I believe most religions were, it wasn't really acceptable to organize in, in the traditional way, and stop me if I'm yeah. incorrect, but um, more so it was like their clubs or something, or like, or they were like, their mosques or whatever were turned into museums or I something? I mean, it was... The Yugoslav period was, was very... A lot of things happened in a very short period of time. Uh, so during the latter part of the 1940s and early part of the 1950s, 
uh, the Yugoslav communists very much had a very Stalinist approach. They were very authoritarian, uh, at times bordering on really totalitarian. They were very anti-religious. Um, and in particular, I think the Muslim community in Bosnia was hard hit by that. Uh, they, the Muslim community was being identified, uh, was identified as sort of a retrograde and backwards and, you know, Eastern and Oriental and, you know, it, the, the, it was the job of the communists to educate them and da 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 da. Um, so there are some people that obviously their family histories run right smack through that period, let's put it that way. And so it's been remembered um, very negatively in, in some circles. Uh, but again, it's very hard to find a family whose family history doesn't run through all of these epics and episode, episodes. Um, later on, I think the, the communists really chilled out to no small extent. Um, and it's, that's a complicated story as to why that happened. I think it's certainly fair to say that by the 1970s and certainly by the 1980s, um, and even the latter part of the 1960s, um, Yugoslavia became a much more open and even arguably pluralistic society within the context of a politically authoritarian regime. So no, it was not acceptable, or acceptable is a funny word, it was not uh, possible to, for instance, you know, have what one might call open and visible and public demonstrations of faith and religiosity, but people were certainly allowed to continue going to mosques, to church, to synagogues, to whatever the case may be. Uh, the country or the regime in particular was officially atheist and secular. And so if one had any sort of political or serious professional ambitions, it was absolutely necessary to perform, uh, you know, to perform a commitment to the ideological principles of the state. Um, how, how genuine those performances were is, is a matter of some debate, but that was sort of the, the deal, as it were. And so from what I understand, the standard of living here in the 70s and 80s was, it was good. I mean, people could have the things that they wanted. They could go on vacations. Mm -hmm. Some people had second homes, perhaps, on the beach or in the mountains. Um, is that kind of an accurate perception of what um, life was like in Yugoslavia in those, that era? I mean, look, it, it, it always depends on who you ask. I think uh, the whole of Yugoslavia, or I should say the former Yugoslavia, has always had a big sort of urban-rural split. Um, I do think that on the whole, it's fair to say that the standard of living was considerably higher than it is today, certainly. Um, and there was a certain kind of social security um, that people really prized and valued, and perhaps prize and value even more today than they did at the time, uh, before they maybe had a sense of what it was like to go without that. Um, education was free, healthcare was free, there was a, a you know, highly developed infrastructure and, and, and transportation uh, grid, and, and, and sort of all the basic um, materials for a functioning society. Um, so I think if you sort of, you know, if, if you were sort of an average person and basically kept your head down, as it were, which is to say that you didn't, um, you weren't particularly concerned about the fact that there was maybe censorship in the media and that certain political opinions were not maybe encouraged and allowed, um, you could have a very comfortable life. Uh, if you were somebody who did have... <laughs> 
aspirations of expressing certain political opinions that were unpopular with the regime at the time, you could find yourself in trouble. Um, so, you know, it's... I don't, I really don't want to sound uh, sort of benign and naive about what it means to live in a, uh, an authoritarian state, um, but one has to understand that for, for instance, for my parents' generation, um, Yugoslavia was kind of the ideal in a way, given especially what happened after the fact. And that's, that's sort of the way I think one needs to understand this. Something deeply catastrophic and deeply traumatic happened. And so the past has been, it is really sort of the halcyon past. It is remembered as a golden age, given how it ended and given um, how this region looks or is experienced by many people today. Yeah, and so in uh, 1980, is it, that Tito passed away? Yeah. And you start seeing some fissures among uh, different groups uh, that are starting to jockey for power. Um, Meanwhile, 1984, Sarajevo hosts the Winter Olympics. It's Mm -hmm. kind of like a high point for the region. And, um, you know, it's an opportunity to showcase this part of the world um, to everybody. And um, within, uh, what is it, seven years, eight years? there is the war that happens in the 1990s, and that is um, presumably the reason that you did not grow up here in mm-hmm. Sarajevo. Can you, um, uh, do you feel comfortable talking a little bit about um, the situation in which your family left? Sure. Um, maybe what the politics were at the time? Like, why, why did this war happen, and, and, and why did it just seem to absolutely splinter this society? Um, I mean, the short version, the short version, and this is, I I have to preface this by saying um, that this is my interpretation of it, and this is sort of what the thesis that I developed in my work, um, and advance in my work, Uh, and it is sort of an explicitly, I would say, anti-nationalist thesis. Um, I, those are my sort of (laughs) political and ideological convictions. Um, I think what happened in Yugoslavia was that um, the then regime, especially under Tito, um, never took the necessary steps to put in place the kinds of institutions and practices necessary for this society to uh, continue functioning as it did under his tenure. Uh, And they especially did not put in in place the institutions and practices that would allow this society to, for lack of a better term, democratize. Uh, Especially given that the official line of the communists was that they were sort of more democratic than, you know, the quote-unquote democratic West, to quote sort of their jargon. that, that in practice did not happen. And what you had actually happened was after 1974, you had uh, a significant revision of the then Yugoslav constitution that uh, federalized Yugoslavia without democratizing it, uh, which meant that instead of having sort of one um, main authoritarian elite that was in charge of the country, you suddenly had six or seven of them. And after Tito died as sort of uh, you know, the, the, the guy upon which the entire system depended, you know, once he was gone, uh, once he was gone as the decider, um, that uh, sort of federalized but non-democratized 
constitutional and political system very quickly showed itself to be unable to function properly. And in the meantime, you then had uh, the emergence of a sort of class of politicians and elites in all of these respective republics, um, but arguably nowhere more so than in Serbia, who were absolutely committed to preserving fundamentally the sort of authoritarian aspects of the Yugoslav regime um, at any, at any uh, cost, uh, which meant that um, they very quickly sort of moved away from the official communist line of not just sort of whatever uh, power to the workers, but specifically this notion of brotherhood and unity, as was the official line in Yugoslavia, which is to say a multi-ethnic state of all Yugoslavs. Um, suddenly nationalism re-emerged, and it re-emerged because it was a political, uh, it was a valuable political option that certain elites could use to keep themselves in power. Uh, again, in particular people like Slobodan Milosevic, but also people like uh, Franja Tudjman in Croatia. Um, and that to me uh, is sort of the crucial dynamic that eventually led to the dissolution uh, of the country as a whole and, and, and the catastrophic wars which gripped the region as a, uh, in, as a whole, I say again. Um, so that's, that's, I think, sort of the short version of that. Yeah, and so then we started seeing some uh, new countries formed. You got Slovenia as the first, um, Croatia, and then in April of 1992, a bunch of people in Bosnia, they hold a referendum on whether or not they want to secede, right, and create yeah. their own country. And there's a peaceful demonstration um, that occurs in here, in Sarajevo, where people of all ethnicities, all labels, all whatever, gather to show solidarity against the increasing tide of nationalism. Um, but then what happens? Yeah, I mean, so there was, there was elections in 1990 that took place um, across, uh, across the, what was then still Yugoslavia. And um, quite shockingly, at least the way it's now been remembered, uh, you know, after 40, 50 years of communist rule, uh, and the thunder rolls as we speak very ominously, uh, <laughs> yeah. you, uh, you had uh, significant successes um, by nationalist parties. Uh, that took place in Croatia, that took place in Bosnia as well, and Slovenia. Uh, and later Serbia as well. Now, I should preface that by saying that uh, when one actually looks at the election results, especially in a place like Croatia, uh, we see that it was actually the electoral system that skewed those results. Um, for instance, the main Croat Nationalist Party in Croatia, the HDZ, wasn't nearly as popular and didn't actually win as high of a popular vote as was translated in um, the number of seats that they got due to the peculiarities of the electoral system. Be that as it may, it was certainly the case that the, that the nationalists did quite well across the board. Um, and of course, as nationalists everywhere, uh, uh, representing sort of ostensibly opposing blocs, um, they very quickly found that they couldn't get along. Um, but at the same time, you had, uh, you sort of had the public at large, which in many cases did vote for these people, but certainly didn't vote for them to, to destroy the country. Um, when you actually look at the, the platforms that these nationalist parties had before, going into the elections, 
Nowhere did any of them say, oh, what we're going for is uh, independence, secession, nationalism, war, ethnic cleansing, genocide, whatever. Um, it was supposed to be ostensibly some, some sort of democratization of Yugoslavia, um, but that Yugoslavia would continue to exist. Um, once the elections had taken place and the results were known, it very quickly emerged that most of these parties had ulterior agendas. Uh, and you then had, on the one hand, the conflict that was developing between these political parties on the one hand, and you sort of had, on the other hand, uh, a very large and very horrified massive population uh, of the population who were deeply concerned um, about what was going on, but really had very, had very little ability to influence their political leaders. Because again, this is, you know, this is a question of political legacies. Uh, coming out of an authoritarian regime, you get your first democratic elections. Uh, all those basic skills as to how you organize protest movements, how you organize social movements, how you organize petitions, et cetera, et cetera, how you keep your elected leaders in line, even without necessarily going to the polls, all those skills I think were really absent and missing here. Um, and uh, unfortunately, it must be said that people were far too complacent um, and did not appreciate the sort of um, absolutely uh, 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 sort of existential threat that nationalism and these nationalist parties and nationalist leaders represented for all of us collectively and uh, individually. And so after that, uh, that event in 92, in April of 92, where people gathered, um, uh, during that event, I should say, there were snipers that started picking people off. Yeah. Um, and that was really the beginning of the end. That was yeah. the beginning of the siege of Sarajevo. But in the months um, previous to that, there, there were signs of the former Yugoslav army positioning themselves all over Bosnia, yeah. especially Sarajevo. Yeah. And and the popular line was that, oh, hey, we're just doing drills. We're yeah. just like getting set up, yeah. you know, for some drills and we're gonna do that. Yeah. But then when, when like the call was made, it suddenly, you know, became evident that they were going to, you yeah. know, have a siege. Yeah. And, um, and, and so the war happened, and, and the siege lasted for three and a half years. Yeah. Um, and, and so, can you, uh, do you, do you feel comfortable talking about like what your family went through at that sure. point? Um, I mean, yeah, so you talk about 92, I mean, you have to keep in mind that by April of 92, April, March of 92, when things sort of started kicking off here, as it were, there had been a war going on in Croatia and Slovenia, um, for more than a year, uh, you know, sort of the first fighting uh, in Croatia and Slovenia had begun in, in the spring and summer of 1991. Uh, so there were there were kids from Bosnia, from from all ethnic groups, that were um, coming back from the front um, and, and and saying to people here, you know, yeah, you know, I just came back from 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 Croatia, from the Kaina, and, and it's insane. It's a war and. Uh, we don't know who we're shooting at. We don't know why we're shooting at. Um, there was a very famous uh, clip from uh, Yugoslav national television uh, in 91 from Slovenia where uh, a TV crew interviewed a young soldier sort of camped out in the woods and they asked him what's going on here. 
and he, in what is really sort of an iconic line, um, responded, well, um, they're pretending to want to secede, and we're pretending to not want to let them go. Um, which is just sort of hilarious, but also tragic, um, in the sense of, you know, it really um, crystallizes what, what I think the kind of panic and confusion there was among ordinary people. Um, so my family left uh, Sarajevo on um, April 9th, 1992. Um, I think, uh, by some count, the siege of Sarajevo is supposed to have officially begun uh, around April 6th. Um, so we left very early on, though again, there had been sort of more than a year of various um, frightening escapades, as it were, and, and certainly in eastern Bosnia there had already been signs of uh, uh, very significant violence. Um, and I think, um, I was quite young, I mean, I do remember it, but I think um, for my parents' generation in particular, who were, you know, in their mid-30s when this was going on, uh, I, I think it was a deeply surreal experience. I mean, um, I, I always sort of had this narrative in my head growing up that like we left quite early on. Um, and then at some point I sort of realized, wait a minute, I mean exactly what I had said a moment ago, there'd been a war in Croatia for a year. That's kind of like saying, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a war in New Jersey, um, but New York City is fine, right? Like it, it just doesn't work that way. Um, and so I think the inability of people to leave um, mostly, I'm not going to say mostly, but in no small part because of sort of emotional and, and personal reasons uh, of simply refusing to believe that, you know, everything that they had ever known was, was going up in flames around them, um, I think is a deep, deep testament to how, how traumatic, how catastrophic, and how unbelievable uh, this whole thing was. And then, of course, you know, to be a refugee, 100, 200 miles down the road or what have you um, in a place that you formerly thought of very much as part of your homeland and is now, you know, is now a foreign country. Um, these were all different kinds of shocks and, and, and traumas. And, um, it, you know, it, it, it left a mark certainly on me and uh, I, I know it absolutely came to define certainly the latter half of my parents' lives and in many ways it's come to completely define my life because it happened sort of uh, right at the beginning of it. And so the, uh, the, the siege itself, the war was incredibly tragic. Um, over a hundred thousand people died in the country yeah. um, and you know for the last two decades people have really struggled to get their lives back together. And uh, I think that's a subject that we'll probably explore in a different podcast. Sure. Um, and in the meantime, people can Google it if they want to. <laughs> but you're here now. Mm -hmm. Why are you here now? What is going on in Bosnia um, currently? Um, you know, like how do you read the situation? What, just what's happening here? Um, well. So the sort of the background point to make is that when the war ended in 95, Bosnia was left with a peace agreement that has been uh, very successful and very functional as a peace agreement, but unfortunately, and quite uniquely in sort of the annals of international diplomacy, um, 
was a peace agreement that included a constitution. The constitution, unfortunately, fractured um, the country administratively along basically exclusively ethno-national lines. Um, so we have something like 14 levels of government. Um, and that's really mostly just to accommodate all these various ethno-national sects. Um, and it doesn't even uh, account for every ethnicity that no, it resides not. in this country. So we have the problem that, for instance, if you're... Uh, if you're uh, from Bosnia's Jewish community or you're from Bosnia-Herzegovina's Roma community, uh, you, you're basically constitutionally barred, uh, for instance, from, from becoming president, uh, one of the three presidents, I hasten to add. Um, the, 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 the sort of short order problem with this or the defining problem with this constitutional order, the, the Dayton Peace Agreement, is uh, it has institutionalized the problem that it was ostensibly designed to resolve, which is to say the problem of ethno-nationalism. You can't ever really hope to circumvent and go beyond nationalism if your constitution essentially requires you to be a nationalist, to hold office, to act politically, to you know have a public profile. Um, nevertheless, uh, the, the sort of the major post-war project in Bosnia has been the consolidation of the peace, uh, attempts to genuinely democratize the country and to get the country into the European Union um, and uh, uh, NATO, ideally, I would personally say, though, though many would disagree with me, I know. Um, the other aspect of this, of course, is that the country has remained um, politically divided. Uh, by many of the same political leaders that led us into war uh, in the first place, uh, for it's in their own best self-interest, of course, to maintain things. And on the other hand, you've had sort of a, a catastrophic decline in people's socioeconomic standards of living. So, for instance, last year, in February of last year, we had a really dramatic um, protest that happened here where people went around torching government buildings and party offices, uh, but they also ended up organizing these sort of incredible grassroots civic assemblies where they, you know, very, very explicitly and very purposefully crossed all those sort of ethnic and political divisions and said, you know what, um, this is absurd. It's been two decades. Uh, you know, they keep talking about nationalism, but we're going hungry. Um, we can surely, we can come together and, 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 uh, find a better way. Uh, and so I think we're, we're at the beginnings in Bosnia of a, of a, new, a new era. Uh, it's going to be a very difficult and a very dramatic and a very slow moving process. Um, but I think finally we're sort of coming to a generational shift. And uh, people are, I, I, I'm tentatively hopeful in saying that I think people are finally realizing that uh, everything that's wrong with this country and everything that's wrong with this region as a whole, uh, in so much as they're unhappy and unsatisfied with it, it is their responsibility to change it and to act. And so, um, for me personally, this is you know this is a topic I've been sort of working on intellectually, um, but it's also something that I really care about deeply personally, and 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 a, it's a conviction I hold very deeply, um, and so. You know, in large part, I am here um, because I want to help 
um, in, in this process. And I, and, I, and I feel like I have certain things that I can maybe contribute and, 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 and certain connections that I can draw for people and that they can draw for me and that together maybe we can, we can start building some of those movements to, to, to make things just a smidge better. Uh, and move the ball, you know, an inch down down the field, and, and then another inch, and then another inch. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to sound like an ignorant outsider again for a moment here. Um, I, I was actually here in Sarajevo in 2012, as they commemorated 20 years since the beginning of the war. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that was my first experience here. I was sort of awestruck by everything I looked at. I would see buildings with bullet holes, mortar sure. marks, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, lots of graffiti everywhere. Um, it just seemed like a really depressing place, honestly. Yeah. But the people are a different story. They're vibrant, they're fun, they're, yeah. they're smart, they're interesting. I mean, I can't say enough good things. And, and here I am here three years later, again as an outsider, just yeah. kind of meandering around, observing things. And it seems like things are a little bit better right now yeah. than they were. Is that... Is that just completely dumb to say, or is there some truth to that? No, I don't. I don't think it's dumb in any in any way. Uh, I mean, look, people uh, people here are sort of famously cynical, and that's not just in in Bosnia Herzegovina. That's that's I would say sort of a general Balkan trait. Um, and we've had an unfortunate go of recent history, um, so that sort of explains our uh, some would say innate cynicism. Um, but I I do think things are getting better here in the sense of what I was saying earlier. I mean, I think people are coming to the realization that um, things can only change when they want them to change. Uh, and in so much as we've started seeing, you know, step by little step, uh, younger people in cultural life, in political life, in public life in general, um, you know, who, who've, who've done amazing things, whether it's, you know, being incredible athletes or um, being incredible writers or being incredibly talented musicians, you know, just sort of the gamut, everything that constitutes sort of the life of a, of a society. Um, I, I think people are beginning to think and see themselves in a slightly different light. And I think, you know, they're tired of thinking of themselves as victims and, and victims of war and survivors and you know every every year springtime here is sort of a parade of a parade of PTSD you know because all the all the various anniversaries are primarily in the spring and summer and I think people have begun to understand that the people who sort of most loudly and most dramatically proclaim and, and want to dwell on those anniversaries and, and all the horrors and terrors that happened here are the ones in whose interest it is to keep people petrified and angry and confused and hurt and vulnerable. And uh, when you are for yourself able to say, you know what, yeah, terrible things happen here and it's gonna remain with me and with my family and this society for a generation or more, but that doesn't mean we can't do something new. And it doesn't mean that we can't commemorate and strive to build a future, right? Um, that's, that's, I think, hopefully, finally, the sort of um, uh, the, the step and the episode that we're trying to get to. Now, of course, I know 
I know as soon as this gets posted, you know, even dear friends of mine are going to say, you know, I disagree with you. I think things are terrible. I can't see anything getting better. Um, and, and, I, and I appreciate that and I understand where they're coming from. Um, and it's not, it's not that I'm an optimist. It's actually that I'm, that I'm sort of a Machiavellian. I'm, I'm sort of hard-headedly committed to the idea that if you're unsatisfied with the present, change it. Mm-hmm. I love that outlook. I love that positivity because, you know, when I first came here in 2012, um, the preceding years, you know, where I never, ever imagined I'd ever make it to a place as exotic as Sarajevo, I was obsessed with reading about the wars, the conflict, the current political system, you know, all that kind of bullshit. I got here and I was I was doing all these 20-year anniversary events that were sure. depressing, war, violence, yeah. blah, 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 ethnic hatred, da, yeah. da, da. Um, I was taking photos of every building that yeah. I saw a bullet hole in. I, I was just obsessed with the war. And then I got here this time and I'm just like, okay, I'm sick of that shit. Like, I want to be here and I want to meet people, I want to see art, I want to, you know, listen to people laughing, even if I don't know what the hell they're saying. Yeah, exactly. and, and I find that everywhere. Absolutely. There are so many amazing people here. Even like uh, Bosnian expats, like my friend Ismet Hersek, who wrote the book Shards, that's an amazing book. Sure. There are amazing uh, Bosnian musicians, like uh, the, the guys from Culture Shock, at least yeah. the lead singer I know is from Sarajevo. Yeah. Um, and in, in the young people, you can kind of see that attitude of like, screw the bullshit that our forefathers gave us. Yeah. That is not our vision for this society. Um, and, and, and it's, it's kind of intoxicating to be around people who see things differently. Absolutely. That said, they still kind of hold on to a lot of that cynicism you're talking about. And how could they not? Um, I have the luxury that I can go back to Portland, Oregon and take a vacation from this and um, you know, have my own you know, whatever life. Um, and then if I want to, I can return to you know, the sure. clusterfuck of Bosnia, but I don't necessarily have to if I don't want to. And I mean, that almost makes me feel like there should be some international program where we sponsor people to get out of Sarajevo for a while to like regroup, recuperate, like reorient their lives and then let them come back here and then enjoy the shit out yeah. of the city. No, I think that's, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, the only thing that I would add to that is, and I was saying this to you, I think the other night, uh, we, were, we were having a few beers. Uh, you know, in the US, you've got a situation now where we're seeing that there are unresolved issues from the Civil War, you know, which took place 150 years ago. Um, and uh, which is to say that Things like wars and, and the dissolutions of particular political regimes and social orders, I mean, these things have consequences for decades, if not centuries. Um, but again, it doesn't mean that uh, you can't move beyond that. It is a factor. It is, it, is a, it is an element of the story, but it is not the only element in the story. And for somebody born you know, uh, like myself in sort of the middle of the 1980s or even folks that were born, uh, you know, in 95 or 1990 or what have you, um, we don't want to be defined by the sins of our fathers. Right. We don't want to be defined um, by a war we had no role in, in creating. 
Um, and you know, I I I want to be able to go to Belgrade, and I want to be able to go to Zagreb, and I want to be to go to uh, I don't know Livno and Banja Luka and and Trebinje and and Skopje and all these wonderful places, and think of them as my own, and they are my own, and I do actively think of them that way, and I and it, you know. It, it matters so much to me that I have friends in each of these places and um, that I see the amazing work that they're doing. You know, just every day they're trying to do a little bit something to make things a little bit better, a little bit cooler, a little bit more inspiring, a little bit just more human and hospitable for people that don't want to live the rest of their lives um, weighed down by sort of the, you know, the dead hand of history, as it were. Um, and I think that is happening here. And, and the more people from outside of our region come here, and the more they, they, they visit and, and, and meet people here, and, and maybe even start to form their own connections and put down some sort of roots here and, and exchange ideas and, and, and everything else that can be exchanged with people here. I mean, I think that's, that's wonderful. That's exactly where we want to go. Yes. Yeah, and this, I mean, this has been a really fascinating talk. We've gone through like, 300 or more years of history. Um, Spark notes. <laughs> it's just been it's been awesome, but we, we're already over our time. Yeah. We're gonna make this a long episode, so what? Um, uh, but before we before we leave, uh, our dear listening audience, can you please tell us how we can um, learn more about what's going on in Bosnia, and more specifically, um, how the listeners can uh, follow your writings and and whatever other projects that you're working on. Um, so I think probably in terms of me, <laughs> uh, the easiest way to follow the stuff that I do is probably through my uh, my Twitter account, and maybe you can put a link to the Twitter oh, yeah, account, sure. so that'll be easiest. Um, for the English-speaking audience, which I assume will be the majority of the folks that will be listening to this, um, I'll plug uh, the website Balkanist, which is a project I'm involved in, which is a, an attempt to uh, publish and share um, really critical and provocative and new uh, writing uh, from across um, the former Yugoslavia, but also uh, Eastern Europe more broadly. Uh, so you can check out uh, Balkanist magazine. Uh, and I, you know, there, there is now thankfully a plethora of English language um, uh, resources available for people that are interested in the Balkans. There's things like Balkan Insight, which is sort of an internationally uh, funded website. Um, but you know, there's, there's a ton of stuff out there. And that's in addition to sort of, I think, the fairly massive literature of books uh, that, that, that exists uh, around, uh, uh, around Bosnia and Serbia and Croatia and the whole, the whole region. So, uh, and, and you know what, people can always contact me. <laughs> I'm happy to always chat with new people. All right, how do they contact you? Uh, give me a shout on Twitter, uh, or you can send me an email and, uh, or visit my personal website where you can find my email and I'm sure you can post a link to that as well. All right, yes, I mean, this was an awesome conversation. Um, there's so much more to talk about. Um, so hopefully you make it out to Portland, Oregon soon and we can do this again. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I can't wait. All right, man, high five. Thank you. Yes, oh. nailed it in one. <laughs>